You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Before this episode of the Final Word Cricket Podcast, a quick thank you to everyone who supports the show. Whether it's by listening to the podcast watching on Adam and Jeff's YouTube channel, or as a contributor on Nerd Pledge, or all three, it means a lot. I want to welcome a new member to the Final Word team, the Brick Lane Brewing Community. Based in Melbourne and brewing great beer for all tastes and all occasions, you can check them out at bricklanebrewing.com. Adam and Jeff will tell you a little more about Brick Lane in the show, but we are grateful for their support, and we hope you'll support them too. Thanks, Brick Lane, for being part of the Final Word, and thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and the final word. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word story time. We're back, baby. We're back in pog form. Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, uh, not the other one. He's the other one, but I said his name first. I'm the first one. I'm the second one, but I said my name second, even though it's me talking. Who knows? Who knows how these things happen in... Pod, I should have said in pod form. We're back in pod form because that would have been what we're actually doing. But yeah, we've had a couple of weeks off and it is remarkable, Adam, how I, I, I don't speak about this with any experience, but I imagine it's like when you're used to doing exercise regularly and then you stop for a little while. It's hard to start again. It's amazing how quickly things go off the rails when you know, we were pumping the show out every week, no problem. As soon as we stopped, we we're like... God, this is hard. <laughs> and we finally got ourselves together to get back going again after two weeks off. Yeah, it's the thing that I do that takes longer than anything else that I do through the course mm. of a given week. So the last two weeks, there's just been a little bit too much on darting across the country and mm. the various commitments that I've had to even consider 
doing the prep. And look, to be honest with you, there's been a lot going on this week too. But we thought two weeks was long enough. We need to mm-hmm. be back on story time. We need to find a way to make it work. I'm currently um, yep. sitting in my hotel room in Taunton, having been at the one day last night between England and India, about to jump on a train back to London to do the blast tonight, then back to Worcester tomorrow, through the one day on Saturday, and so it goes. But I wasn't going to miss out on another week of story time because despite all the work, it's some of the most mm. enjoyable hours that I spend <laughs> through a week as well. So here we are. Well, you know, if anyone had told me at one point that your your work is going to involve looking up obscure facts about exactly. Ian Chapel, I'd be like, absolutely, <laughs> give me that job. Um, so here we are. A quick update from our friend, friend of the show, FOS, do we abbreviate those things? Uh, Declan Lawler, who's going to do the run along the Thames to raise money for Lord's Tavs, uh, sent us in an update a little while ago saying that he's getting started on July the 9th, so that's eight days away at the time of recording. It'll be a week when you hear this show. The fundraiser is ticking over nicely, says Declan. Uh, and I'll give it a blast on my social media friendship work circles in the next uh, little while leading up to the run. I've been having some pain in my Achilles. Watch out, the Achilles is a tricky one. Uh, but the physio tells me it's just a result of the significant mileage. Yes, Declan, you've never run a marathon before. And then you were like, I'd better train to run two marathons in a day, every day for four days. <laughs> Immediately, that's what's going to happen. But so, so Declan's going to be doing a bit of uh, kind of saving Private Ryan, um, you know, staggering through the the last stages, possibly carrying his mate uh, on his shoulders as they get to the finish line. Yeah, and I met Declan at the test match at Bristol a couple of weeks ago. It was lovely. I asked him how his running was going, and at that particular point, I think it was when the Achilles injury must have been at its worst, and he mm. had to stop training or he had to modify his training regime. But we shared what was probably an irresponsible hug. We're allowed to hug here now, and I think we have masks or something like that. Maybe that's the get out of jail Mm. clause. But it was lovely to meet Declan as he was preparing to start his adventure. And yeah, of course, that's all part of the money that's being raised for Lord's Tabs this year through the final word, which is just wonderful. So thank you again, Declan, for taking on this massive run or four runs. We'll be with you all the way from Mm. July 9. Well, not with you all the way. We won't be with you all the way. No, let's not, we let's won't not be. Make we'll be with you at the end. Yeah, we'll, be there. We'll, uh, we'll be with you at the finish yeah, line. We'll, we'll try and see you at the end. And I should say, by the way, that Declan did ask me whether anyone wanted to join him for the final leg in London, the final bit right in the guts of mm-hmm. town, which I think is the 12th of July, uh, maybe the 11th mm-hmm. of July. We'll clarify that. I'll pop it in the show notes. But the point here is that if you're inclined to run a little bit mm. with Declan towards the end, that would be nice if we had a you know, sort of a final word flavour yep. to what is going to be a massive effort. How long is is the final leg? Is it is it a sort of matter that they run? Is it if it were like two miles on day four? Yeah, you know, I think I think we'll consider three hundred miles. Yeah, I think we'll, I think he's looking for a Champs Elysees uh, style uh, mm-hmm. Tour de France uh, companion okay. for the end with the glass of champagne right. while cycling yep. thing. I've always wondered, by the way, what would happen if when sipping that glass of champagne in the Tour de France in that final mm-hmm. sort of ceremonial leg, if they mm-hmm. came a cropper and hit the deck? I mean. They, I yeah. mean, they wouldn't win the tour. I mean, you've got to complete the leg, don't you? What if the... I mean, this is something that, you know, has gone mm. through my mind in the past. It must take a certain skill set to complete that final lap or final leg whilst uh, drinking a glass of champagne when you've been absolutely mm. knackering yourself day in, day out. Has this ever happened? Has anyone fallen off the bike? I maybe, don't know. Maybe that's part of why you do it. It's like a last little show of skill or <laughs> a last test or something. I've always wondered if someone just said bugger convention and just challenged on their last day and beat them and won. Like, yes. It'd be funny, you know. It'd be very funny. A lot of people would be mad. If you had like a, you know, kind of Nick Kyrgios of cycling who was like, nah, it's going to win. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm surprised. Well, why stop racing? Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised Lance Armstrong didn't do it when in years that he didn't. Yeah, win. but anyway. Yeah, the the one the time that he came third when he was only juiced up enough to get get bronze medal status <laughs> on the podium, he got the jabs early. Lance, no hesitation about getting the jab there. Right, let's do the thing that we do on the show. On this show, we talk about cricket history, and we do so via a, a medium of looking at numbers that take us back into the history. Uh, the game that we play to look at the numbers is called Nerd Pledge. Sometimes I shout that out. Today I didn't. I don't know why. I just felt like I couldn't build up to it and then just shout out of nowhere. It feels like it needs the sort of the prompt from me. So why don't we try it mm. again where I go something like, okay. Jeff, I think we might now, at this stage of the show, get into the bulk of it and we do it via the medium of... Nerd Pledge! Nerd Pledge. That's better. Uh, that felt that better. Good. That did feel better. It felt more like it. Nerd Pledge is a game that we play with lovely people on our Patreon page. It's a reverse quiz. They quiz us. So what they do is to help us make the show and to help us fund making the show a couple of times a week, they send us a contribution, but it's not like a normal round number of currency. It's it's a It's got a decimal in there usually. It's a very specific number and it relates to cricket in some way and we have to work out what the relationship is. First cap off the rank today is Dom Griffiths. Um, and we've got quite a UK heavy show in the first part with quite a few uh, UK contributors, I'm guessing, because they're contributing in pounds. Two pounds and 38 pence from Dom Griffiths. So that means 238, 238 in that sequence. There could be a decimal anywhere in there with the cricket number or there might not be. Dom has also sent through a hint which says it could also have been £3.10. 238 that could have been 310. What do you make of it, Adam Collins? Ah, uh, yes. Well, I- I'm going to start with the 310 because the mm. 310 helps solve the-, the 238, not the other way around, Dom. So thank you for that. At Leeds in uh, July 1965, John Edrich made 310, as we've talked about mm-hmm. before on the show. I thought it was worth going into a bit more detail about the backstory on that. He wasn't going to play. But Jeff mm. Boycott, hometown boy uh, there at Yorkshire, was injured and was resting up and recovering. So that gave him this in to play. And boy, he took his opportunity. <laughs> they, were, they were 366 for one at stumps on day one against New Zealand, which put it in the context of the mid-60s and the turgid scoring rates. That, that's like scoring 500 in a day in current test yep. cricket, I suppose. Do you reckon Boycott was pissed that he'd been upstaged? But, well, yeah, entirely possible uh, that he was, but uh, yeah, and, and, up, and upstaged. Well, in, in many respects, really, given the scoring rate. So Edrich was 194. It's not right, that. That's irresponsible <laughs> cricket, that is. Uh, 194 uh, by the close of play uh, there with uh, Ken Barrington. It was uh, 152. They ended mm. up putting on 369. Their partnership came to an end early on the second day when Barrington edged behind. Edrich was 199 at the time of that dismissal, but he was just getting warm. He was just getting um, mm-hmm. ready to roll and really take off. He, he, doing uh, the windmills, swinging yeah, the arms that's right. That's right, doing a few arm circles. He, he was dropped on 287, but has kept going. And then on 299, he hit this, apparently this lavish cover drive uh, to bring up his triple century. He was the eighth man to reach a triple century in test cricket. There have been now 27 men who've done that uh, in 31 instances. So there have been a few who've mm-hmm. doubled up, like Bradman, for example. Bradman, who else have made two triple tons? Uh, Gail. Lara. Uh, Gail. Saywag. There we go. Got I him, think that's it. Got him quickly. Then 10 runs later, uh, Mike Smith pulls the pin at 546 for four, and they win easily by an innings and 87 runs. I mean, they win like with yeah. a leg in the air easily, mm-hmm. which means that kind of sucks that he declared when he was on 310 rather than allowing Edrich to go beyond Sobers' record of 
365. Surely it wouldn't have taken much longer, maybe an hour or something like that, going at the kind mm. of clip that he was. But by the time it was all said and done, he'd struck 54 fours and five sixes, which, of course, is the number that Dom is referring to, 238, two pounds 38, uh-huh. so 238 runs in boundaries. And I like that he, like, abandoned it. 76.77% of the runs of the 310 were in boundaries. No one's ever gotten that close to that. Sayawag's the only other with a score above, I think it's a score above 250, to abandon it himself with 69% mm-hmm. when he made 202 in boundaries out of 293. As far as Edrich's broader story is concerned, it was the final innings in like this crazy sequence where he goes, one, this is where he's obviously playing first class cricket and test cricket, mm-hmm. 139, 121 not out, 205 not out. 55, 96, 188, 92, 105, and 310 <laughs> not out. I mean, it's an extraordinary, <laughs> staggering sequence right up there with the best we've ever seen, really. Unfortunately, though, it ends there because in his next test match, which was the first of the series against South Africa, they mm-hmm. played two series that year, England in 1965, he copped a blow to the head. Yeah. Uh, when he was on seven and and that was it for a while for him all up though he played 77 test matches between uh, 1963 1976 is when he finished for 12 centuries in excess of 5100 test runs he was known for his bravery so that head knock in 1965 was sort of part of a a broader pattern I suppose of him being hit on his body and that continued right to the very end uh, against the West Indies the fearsome West Indies in in 1976 when he was still playing test cricket well into his 40s Mm. he passed away at age 83, just before Christmas last year, which uh, we talked about on the show then. But, uh, yeah, a true great of English cricket, John Edrich. He's 310, 238 of those in boundaries. And I just want to credit the Cricket Country website and specifically Kartik Paramal for the research he did into that innings, which I drew from there. Very nice. What do you bet in that run, in that streak, where Edrich made 500s, including a double and a triple? What do you reckon he was still pissed off about having got out in the 90s twice? Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, you look at it here, they're all above 50, aren't they? So out in the 90s yeah. twice, and I mean, I, I didn't actually calculate what the average is there, but it must be mm. sort of 200-odd based on how many red inkers he's got. Yeah, it's crazy. Three, three not outs for the big innings. Therefore, yeah, it's got to be. I'm not going to try to do it in my head because this isn't. We're not that good. We're not that good. <laughs> um, we can. We, we can. Do we can do lots through. of things. Yes, I can do things in Excel spreadsheets, but um, but not that. I'm trying to calculate it in my head right now. I can't help myself. 800, 900, 1,000, 1,000, 1,300. 1,300 divided by 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. What's 1,300 divided by 5? It's above 200, 200 that's for sure. 200 200 and plenty. There you go. We were right with yeah. our first assumption. So that's our first number of the day. Jeff, uh, and again, thank you to Dom Two, Griffiths. 216.66, maybe something like that. Nice one. You said that you're not a mathematician a couple of weeks ago on the show, Jeff, and then you did that crazy mm. thing where you were able to how did you, you divide it 0.66 to find a whole I number? S- or <laughs> well, No, I said that a number that ended in, in point something two would have to be multiplied 50 times before it reached, uh, before it, you found the whole number that it was divided by. I mean, that, uh, but that, that was, seems pretty it, Yeah, pretty rudimentary when you put it like that, but it, it sounded impressive at the time when I listened back to that <laughs> episode of the podcast. Sid's our next number. And it is two pounds eighty five, two eighty five, mm-hmm. and the clue here is part of a fish, precognition. That is, that's the clue. Sid, part of a fish, precognition? Question mark. That is 
I mean, uh, uh, good luck. Sick. I mean, if it, <laughs> I mean, you know, there's sick. a lot of there's a lot of two eighty fives, isn't there? I mean, there's the sort of yep. there's the Peter May two eighty five we talked about on the show. There's the Ranji two eighty five back from nineteen oh one. I mean, there, there are, but no, I don't think any of I, don't, I mean, I, I don't see anything fishy about either of those. No, they're not. They're not marine related. Ranjit no. Singh not famous for his aquatic activities. The Jacques Cousteau of the cricketing world, Ranjit Singh. <laughs> he he pioneered uh, scuba diving on the leg side. Before that, they only scuba dive on the off side. <laughs> <laughs> that is so fucking niche. I mean, I can't tell you how niche that is. Anyway, go on. Um, yeah, yeah, Sid. Now, Sid has obviously heard us say on the show before that we are not good at cryptic crossword clues. This is not an area in which either you or I excel. We have our skills, but it's something about it just doesn't make sense to me. Like, I, I, I sort of know how cryptics are supposed to work, but it just doesn't make sense. I know how words work, but it doesn't make sense. You read it, you open the cryptic, and it goes like, the awkward moment for the parson thrice on thursdays <laughs> and all i can think is like when i am king first against the wall will be the cryptic crossword clue writers first <laughs> against the wall like just fuck off with that you know? <laughs> like there's something so smug about cryptic crossword clues I mean, this isn't reflecting on you sid i'm sure sid sid is lovely loves it it's just in general if you're like i'm writing you know the cryptic for the times you've kind of got to be a bit of a self-satisfied prick about it right is yeah, it, is that I, think, I think that's yes. I think it's inherent in even those who do the daily cryptic and they do the you know, mm. the Guardian cryptic crossword. Hard as it might well be, it's like you need to tell everybody that you're doing the, the Guardian cryptic crossword, mm. isn't it? I mean, there's no point yeah. doing it unless you've communicated it to everybody you know. Right, right. What's the what? I can't remember whose line it was when he said. I've known a lot of men who tried to wrestle an alligator, but I haven't known one who didn't tell anyone about it. <laughs> yeah. It's a little like that. So initially I was thinking, okay, 285s. I was looking at five for 28s as well. Steve Waugh's best test bowling was a 28 for five. There's a crazy Wazzy Macram one where he, I think he takes five for 28 in nine overs against the West Indies who are playing four quicks in Lahore. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like the West Indies just used to, they just did whatever they wanted. This yeah. is like this is 1990 where they've got Greenwich and Haynes and Lara and Hooper and so on. But their attack is Malcolm Marshall, Kurtley Ambrose, Ian Bishop and Courtney Walsh um, rolling out at the, for the third test at Lahore with uh, with Carl Hooper to send down a few off breaks if they need them. But look, I, can't, I was like, all right, I'm going to try one more time with the cryptic clue and try to get my brain into gear. And I started at the end. That is, I was like, okay, that is, could that, is, are these three parts of a name? That is being id est, being I-E, right? So there are a lot of names that end with I-E. So it could be could be telling me that the last part of the name is I-E. Does that make sense? Uh, no. <laughs> have you it, know, have you it know on the swing. You, write, you know when you write um, an, an abbreviation, like an example? Oh, sorry, say, uh, I-E. I'll be doing this, I-E, blah, blah, blah. Okay, you okay, know. okay, all right. Yeah. Uh, I'm willing to go yeah. with that. Okay, that makes sense. So that is... The Latin is id est, and that's why you use IE as a you know, fancy way of, of showing off that you can write things in other languages. You know? you know when you really need to say something in another language, like a je ne sais quoi. You're like, <laughs> oh, if only we had a way in English of expressing the phrase, I don't know what. Or if only we had the ability to say that. No, I'll just have to go with the French. So we still use IE which means that is, so it's got to end with I-E. So then I was looking, I was like, part of a fish, would, is there like a Shubman Gill 
reference in there potentially or like a Stephen Finn and I was like fish don't have that many parts that other animals don't have like it's just a tail or whatever or a head so like a fish tail is specific I so. reckon if you wanted it enough there'd be enough fish puns to fill at least a couple mm. of cricket teams oh easy yeah easy rain rain delay material you know exactly when- very guardian live blog areas isn't it the yeah. OBO will yeah. we'll send in our fish 11s and, and so on I could you could definitely see it happening on the radio too when you when you're just desperately trying to fill two hours of yes of random random shit chat get on the text line and send us your best fish 11 uh, there's got to be a few like David snappers out there and so but Gil, there was nothing numerically relevant, but I couldn't figure out the middle part. Precognition. Every time I read the word precognition, I just heard remix to ignition. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> no, uh, Kelly should be in jail. Is he in jail? He should be in jail. Um, if he's not in jail, he might already be in jail. Yeah, I, but, I, I don't know. I know it's a fucking tune, but I, but I don't mm. know if he's in prison or not. Okay. We can, you know, it's like that game of dead or alive when you've, you know, sort of go through celebrities yeah. you haven't heard from in a while and try and guess if they're dead or alive and, mm. and go around the table. But yeah, much be the same with uh, with, uh, with, yeah. with members of the entertainment industry. Are they in prison or not? I know that Bill Cosby yeah. is no longer in prison, for example. Just got out. Yes. Yeah, should still be in prison. The, yeah, it's just the remix to Ignition. The writer should be in prison. <laughs> yeah, so precognition. Uh, I was like, what's a synonym for precognition? Because precognition means like knowing the future, knowing something that's, that's happened before it's happened, being cognitive of it before it's taken place. So they're all very cumbersome terms, you know, that... that can't fit into a name until I th- remembered Ghostbusters 2, is it? When Bill Murray's doing the thing with the cards where he's like trying to work out if subjects of your study can predict what's going to be on a card. And right. there's like the really hot girl who keeps getting it wrong, but he keeps saying she got it right because he wants her to do more <laughs> studies. Yeah. Speaking of should be in prison, was <laughs> that was the way things happened, apparently. Um, so what were they testing for? Extrasensory perception, ESP. E-S-P-I-E, part of a fish, Gil, E-S-P-I-E, Gillespie. Oh, right. Oh, oh right. Yeah? That's, I mean, it's it's very good. I mean, mm. I'm not, <laughs> with all the goodwill and all the love in the world, we mm. shouldn't be encouraging this kind of behaviour. Yeah. However. <laughs> yeah. Please don't make us do this. <laughs> Please, Please don't make us do this. I mean, I am never, ever going to solve one of those. And Jeff's done well there, no. but he's not going to solve many of them either. But nevertheless, that um, that is, yep. is very good. Jason Gillespie. So, uh, so is there something about Jason Gillespie that relates to 285 and a couple of things? One being that when he was the night watchy in Chennai in 04, and he His played best very innings. hand as, as a night watchman. Magnificent I innings. Think, I think, oh, this is just from memory, but I'm, I think he got out with a score on 285. I didn't have time to look that up, but I'm, I think that's what it was when okay. he was out. So that could be a 285, but what I did look up is that he had a test bowling economy rate through his career of 2.85, which would be £2.85 from Sid, Gill, ESP, IE, Jason, 285, done and dusted. Well played, Jeff. And thank you, Sid, for keeping us on our toes, I think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's move right along, Jeff. Uh, yes. What have we got? We've got uh, £5.96. Thank you, Pete Simmons. And Pete Simmons has not sent any accompanying information, which is fine and good and encouraged. You're very welcome to do that because that means Adam can express himself fully. You've got 596, a clean slate, a blank canvas. What will you do with it? 
Yeah, it's good. I like these. Uh, um, so, well, first of all, it, this was the score that the West Indies declared on when Lawrence Rowe made his triple ton. Uh, so, yeah, we've been talking about triple tons in the episode already, John Edrich. We've been talking yeah. about the few good triple tons, and this often mm-hmm. gets raised as one of the better, one of the best uh, triple yep. centuries in Test cricket, sort of in strife. Uh, in, in yeah, because England did. England batted first and made about 400, I think. Yeah, that's and right. Then, so they're behind the game, and then he, then he goes on and smashes them for 302. Mm. Um, we've been and talking they nearly won. The Windies nearly won because England were hanging on for a draw by their fingernails on the last day. So he basically set up a win. They just couldn't quite. I think they were six down for bugger all on the last day and, yeah. and couldn't get there. Yeah, yeah. And we've been talking a fair bit about Rowe in the DMs recently because we were calculating the highest averages of all time, as we tend to do, when Devin mm. Conway was blitzing it at Lords, And it always stands out that... Rowe, who of course made a double hundred and a century on debut mm. at Sabina Park against New Zealand in 1972. So 214 mm. and 100 not out. So at the conclusion of his first test match, his average was 314. Yeah. And before he was out in his third innings, he made another 22, I think. So he was 336. He was averaging 336 in live terms before yeah, yeah. his average fell. So, so in, order must, to, yeah, in order to... He has the highest ever average. Yeah, so for, for it to happen... Well, it could happen that way where it's a series of not out scores or 336 could be someone's... Uh, Debut score Debut Yeah Which you think about it That's a relevant number as well Because that's what Hammond made Isn't it When Hammond broke the world mm. record Made a 3-3-6 so mm. Against New Zealand as well Anyway That's not important What's important Is that we uh, respect And admire Lawrence Rowe On this show I'm going to go somewhere different though For 5.96 So staying on records we've, It's been a big sort of Record show so far today We'll have a couple Later as well I'm going to go back to October 2018 to the SACA, so the South Australian Cricket Association Women's First Grade Competition, a game between Northern Districts and Port Adelaide. The Port Adelaide, very proud club. Indeed, both are very mm-hmm. proud clubs. They've both developed loads of first class. Were they wearing the prison bars, though? This is what the people want to know. <laughs> <laughs> Just when they were singing the song afterwards. <laughs> was R. Kelly behind the prison bars? <laughs> well, well, Port Adelaide didn't sing the song uh, this day, and I'll explain why. So Northern Districts bat first, and they really go for it. Uh, Tegan McFarlane, who was the captain on the day and a striker's mainstay in the WBBL, made 130 off 80 opening the batting. Then Tabitha Saville, another player that we've seen a little bit over the years, Jeff, made 120 from 56, so that's quite the foundation. Then Sam Betts, who we've watched play for the Scorchers in the in the Women's Big Bash League, mm-hmm. coming in at number four, 124 not out from 71 balls. And Darcy Brown, as a 15-year-old, now, of course, an Australian bowler, but then mm-hmm. just a, but a kid coming through the ranks, made 117 not out from 84 balls to stick the landing. 64 fours, just three sixes, interestingly, so all on mm-hmm. the carpet. Port Adelaide bowled 88 extras, including 75 wides. And it all added up to 596 for three in 50 overs. Jesus 596 Christ. for three in 50 overs. At the time, they thought it was the sort of record for 50-over cricket, mm. which it wasn't the case. They, they found out later that in a, in a representative uh, South African under-19s game in 2010, a team scored 690 for one. 
I don't know how representative a game that could have been, but anyway. Mm. But yeah, Port, the, the mitigating circumstances there, as detailed by the, uh, the club coach, who, who was a chap by the last name of Sayers, who probably related to Chad, mm. said that Port had lost 15 players in the off-season. There'd been an exodus of players to other clubs, and they were really mm-hmm. weak playing kids, and their overseas imports had yet to arrive, which contributed, because they're playing in October, the very start of the season. Right. So it, it was a perfect storm for Port Adelaide. So you're saying... That Dr. Sayers had no players. <laughs> uh, yeah, perfect storm, for, uh, a mm. port and a storm, storm and a port. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, it was all, it was all, it was all pretty shit for them, and they ended up getting okay. bowled out for about like eighty odd or something in reply. So, uh, yeah, northern would. districts went on to you know, after you've been demoralised like that, you're not, yeah, you know, it's not, not going to happen. By the time you conceded six hundred, I think it's fair enough to say, look, let's just get home as quickly as possible. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, let's I, not hang around while the ninth wicket puts on a doughty fifty six. Yes, like, I, I wish to go home. <laughs> yeah, let us be in the pub <laughs> post haste, <laughs> please. So some familiar names to all deliveries. Yeah, when I saw that come up, I saw those familiar names from the WBBL who we followed over the years, Jeff, and I thought that was worth yeah. uh, worth noting on the way through that five ninety six. It may not be the record, but it's certainly the Australian record, shall we say, for fifty over cricket. Well, well, from Lawrence Row, from, from the rows to the highs, if you will. Um, that was uh, <laughs> Darcy Brown. Jesus Christ, that's just rude. Yeah, yeah I, and I mean, look, I've watched Sam Betts play a lot of WBBL, and I'm not going to say. I won't say the most talented player with the stick in the comp, you know. Um, does a fair bit of work down the order. Mm. So, yep, it, it must have been... It must have been slightly threadbare going in the in the bowling ranks that day for Port. Yeah, the fact that they bowled 75 wides, I mean, that's uh, that's fairly telling, isn't it? Anyway, uh, strong club, Port Adelaide, and I'm, I'm sure they bounce back in the women's division. Uh, next number is in dollars. $2.57 here from Josh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have a clue. And it is as follows. Move in, now, move out. Yes. And there was a second part of the clue. I know you'd seen it already because we discussed it to see whether you had any reading on this. uh, It was move in, now move out, hands up, now hands down. Does this mean anything to you? Does this ring any any bells in the... Well, yeah, it didn't. It didn't. That was the thing. And I was disappointed that it didn't. It feels lyrical, doesn't Mm. it? It feels like it's going to, like, that's where it's going. And, you know, you know it or you don't. It's a bit like Spicks and Specs. Like, you know the answer or you don't know the answer. And Mm -hmm. I don't know this one. What if I did it in a voice like this? Move in now, move out. Hands up and hands down. Back up, back up. Tell me what you're going to do now. Keep rolling, 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 rolling. (laughs) Keep rolling, rolling, rolling. I can just see you, Jeff, circa 2000, 18 years old or whatever you were at the time, you would have been heavily invested in Limp Biscuit, I'm sure. <laughs> Massive jeans. We were all just wearing yeah. jeans that you could yeah. house a family inside. Yes, Josh has sent us Limp Biscuit lyrics, <laughs> <laughs> which which is just a fine move on its own. In fact, I, th- I, th- I think for that alone, I think we should... Uh, we should award Josh our Brick Lane Brewing Community uh, Gold Star yes. for the week, which which means uh, which means that Josh gets to send a, a case of beer to someone. Josh, you can send it to yourself, or you can send it to someone else that you like. As long as they're in Australia, they have to be in Australia to pick it up. Brick Lane are helping us with the show. I'm just cracking a, an ice cold can of uh, the one love pale ale, crisp and refreshing. Some nice nice people from Melbourne, Brick Lane. 
They are from my little part of uh, Melbourne as well, out at Dandenong, as we talked about on the uh, weekly show a couple of days ago. A new association with them. They work at the Dandy Tap House. They're there at the, the Queen Victoria Market as well between Thursdays and Saturdays. We're thrilled to have them on board with us, as you would have heard off the top of the show with uh, Jay's voice over there. They're going to be working with us uh, through the duration of 2021, which is super exciting. Um, you can visit their website, Brick Lane Brewing. It's all in the show notes. And uh, yeah, we're looking forward to uh, hopefully being in a position to not only give away beer to you, dear listeners, uh, over the journey, but also to uh, encourage you to buy some of the good stuff yourself because they're yeah, good people doing good things. Yep, sending on some some liquid love, if you will, to somebody who you <laughs> want to have it. Could be you, could be someone else. Uh, <laughs> that's That's gone a lot worse than I thought. It <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Josh. Sending on some liquid love the way that Fred Durst would have many times, I'm sure. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, they did have the album called Chocolate Starfish and the Hot Dog Flavoured Water, um, which somehow sold a lot of copies. I don't know. I, I didn't buy one. I will say that. A friend, of mine, a friend of mine got um, Chocolate Starfish to play at his wedding. Wow. And it was the night that um, Wills and Kate got married as well, the royal wedding. So he, mm. he, he decided to have his wedding on the same night as the royal wedding and to get Chocolate Starfish to be the entertainment. Cracking night. But yes. <laughs> I don't think I knew what Chocolate Starfish meant in the broader sort of culture right. until I was much older. Yep. I thought it was quite okay. a clever name when I used to drive yeah. past the... They used to play at the, the Hallam Hotel, the Hallam Pub all mm. the time. Uh, and you'd see the banner hanging up uh, over the over the railings there. You think, that's a pretty cool name, Chocolate Starfish, not mm. knowing what it was alluding to. Yeah, I just think of like the Gillian chocolates in the shape of various sea creatures, you know, various shells and, and whatnot, those, those fancy chocolates in the box. You know what I'm talking about. I do, I do. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, you could offer someone with your chocolate starfish. Anybody? <laughs> like, chocolate starfish? Can, I, no. can I offer you a chocolate starfish? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can I pass it around the room? Um, <laughs> look, we could be onto something here. If we started the brand of chocolates called Chocolate Starfish, well, we've already yeah. had the, the, the marine flavour, marine flavour, mm-hmm. marine theme. It would, it would have a marine flavour. <laughs> Maybe it's, it's like the Terry's chocolate orange, but a starfish. Terry's chocolate starfish. Can I offer you a Terry's chocolate starfish? <laughs> Terry, put it away, mate. When, when Harry Kane scores the second goal, that, that's when Terry gets the chocolate starfish out. Um, it's exciting, exciting times for people in England. Now, we've got to get on with this number. Okay. It's $2.57. Okay, we it's from Josh. It started innocently with some Limp Biscuit lyrics. The question is, what do those Limp Biscuit lyrics relate to? And the answer is, I actually don't have any fucking idea. Keep rolling, rolling, rolling was the message of the song from Limp Biscuit back in the day. Keep rolling, rolling, rolling. That was the advice. So obvious possibilities could be, uh, say, Darcy Short with the Australian record score in List A Cricket of 257 when he kept rolling, rolling, hit about 36s that day. Wazim Akram making 257 in Test Cricket when he hit the most sixes in a test innings. There was a lot of keep rolling there. I did wonder if there might be a Trevor Chapel connection with like rolling the ball along the pitch, you know, keep rolling, yeah. rolling, rolling. But there I've, got, there I've no... got one for you. I've got one for you. Do you? Yeah, I do. I do. Okay. okay. Roland Butcher, very famous and uh, cricketer in the English cricket conversation in terms of being the first mm-hmm. black man to represent his country. Yep. He played in 257 limited overs matches for Middlesex. Roland Butcher. Oh, like that's good. Do you like it? 
That's good. For for Middlesex specifically. Do you know this because you've been doing Middlesex research over the last I I I'm I'm gonna be honest with you. I, I popped in Roland Butcher two five seven just on a hunch. Not on a hunch, just okay. on I was curious maybe that maybe this okay. would have been so and, and what do you know, it comes up on the on the Middlesex Hall of Fame page. Right. Because I actually looked at every Roland who had played international cricket. <laughs> this is what I did for this clue. So I looked at Roland Butcher, Roland Holder, Roland yes. Lefebvre, who played for the Netherlands. Yes. Uh, Toby Roland Jones. Very good. Uh, Roland Beaumont, who played five tests for South Africa starting in the Triangular Test Series in 1912. And also Dr. Roland Pope, who was roped in to play one test in 1885 when the first choice 11 went on strike and they had to ask the doctor to play. <laughs> and also Rolando Rivas, who played three T20s for Chile. A bit of a Jody Hicks career. Three so far. First uh, game, thanks for coming, against Mexico. Second game, thanks for coming, against Argentina. Third game, made a duck against Peru and then <laughs> took one for 45 with the ball off four, four overs. So Rolando Rivas had an interesting time. But I couldn't find any 257s for any of those in, say, number of first-class matches or whatever it was. But... Roland Butcher has played 257 for Middlesex, which is another level down on the stats research that I didn't go to with my Rollins. Yeah, that, 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 and that is a brilliant answer. Yeah, well, it'll do. It'll do, I think. Thank you, Josh. 257. You've won yourself a slab as well. Thank you to Brick Lane, the Brick Lane Brewing community. We're just chuffed to have them on mm-hmm. board with us. Uh, see more about them in the show notes. Lachlan Pie is next up, Jeff, mm-hmm. with $4.08. And I think... It would be inappropriate when 4.08 comes up. It only means one thing uh, now and will forevermore yeah. in cricket terms. It, it um, very instantly means one thing as soon as yeah, you see that, that's 4.08. Right. It's one of those numbers that we know. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, the, the cap number of the late Philip Hughes and the number 4.08 and the number 63. I mean, they're just numbers that now, certainly in Australian cricket and probably world cricket as well, will always be remembered for Philip Hughes. Yeah, he's 25 test matches, but yeah, when he made his debut back at Durban in in 2009, early 2009, he was he was mm. awarded cap 408. And it, it was hugely significant in the test match that was played just after his death as well because they painted the 408 on the Adelaide Oval turf and and there was that moment, that sort of inadvertent moment, Steve Smith said later, but when Smith raised his 100, he walked over to the 408 and stood next to it while he was raising his bat. Mm. And I think he said later he'd, he'd just kind of gravitated towards it automatically. He hadn't really considered it, but that's just how it had panned out. And so there's there are those striking photographs of that day, but and that that pretty amazing match when, you know, the way that... Remember the way that David Warner came out and just started taking to the Indian fast bowlers. He hit six or seven boundaries early in the first half dozen overs from memory. Just Even less. I, I reckon I reckon he struck six boundaries in the first two overs of the test match. Mm. And it was almost... I mean, yeah, Warner plays on emotion at the best of times, right? I don't think he does as much now, by the way. I think Warner's a very different kind of cricketer than he was even in, in 2014. But, mm. yeah, it felt like he was... I mean, he may not have literally been crying, but it felt like, you know, that, that was the type of innings it was. Like he was just fueled by mm. this emotion uh, and that's, that needed to be expelled out of his system early in the innings and it was expressed by these yeah. flurry of boundaries. It wasn't the indiscriminate stroke play. If I recall correctly, they were all, they were all struck crisp. through cover. Um, yeah. He just made a decision that he was going to go early and, and let out a bit of energy and did it perfectly and went on to secure twin tons. And, 
yeah, the 408 on the ground, of course, is where they gravitated when Nathan Lyon took the final wicket. Um, the whole team ran over and, and celebrated there on, mm. on that piece of turf in front of the member stand there at Adelaide. So, And also where they celebrated uh, late that night. I remember yeah. being there watching after play, you know, taking hours to write up the, the report as, as usual. And mm. that's where the, the team all circled, you know, around, they, they formed the circle around the 408 um, to, to celebrate the win and, and sing the song. So, yeah, that's always what it means um, and, and that's always what it ties back to with that Adelaide Test match as well. I, I still, even now, I mean, we look back at it, I still can't fathom how they played a Test match a couple of weeks after that. Mm. It, I mean, I, I get it. I understand why they had to and why, you know, why the show had to go on. And Well, yeah. had to is probably too strong a word, but why the show was going to go on. But, yeah, to think that probably half the players on the field in that test match mm. were there at the SCG a couple of weeks earlier. I mean, the, the trauma that those young men went through over those couple of days. Yeah, yeah a fairly stunning couple of weeks um, in so many ways. But, yeah, that's part of it, isn't it? That test match that was played, and I was there as well, Jeff, as you know, and uh, yeah, it was it was a very strange time initially at least, but, but it turned into an absolute classic. Yeah, the, um, the, the Warner example particularly, which people do forget that, you know, he's the, he's the guy holding Philip Hughes on the medicab as they go off the yeah. SCG and, and couldn't couldn't face getting in the nets, was sort of too spooked to go in the nets and then came out yeah. and, and peeled off twin hundreds in that match. It's, it's an extraordinary time. And I suppose playing was, like maybe it was the, the best thing. There's that, you know, I, I know you and I have both had the experience as well of, of losing close friends. You, it's... You want something to do. You, it's mm. almost like the worst thing would be to to do nothing, to switch everything off, because all you can do is sit around and think about it. And so, even though whatever you could be doing seems completely unimportant, it still feels better to be doing something to have something that's next. Yeah, I, I guess the the where there's the where it feels where it feels like it jars so it was, they, were, they were going out to do exactly the same thing that their friend mm. had done uh, and passed away doing mm. I mean it's, it was, it's all so close to the bone I, I went and wrote about Michael Clark a couple of years on maybe three or four years on four years yep. on it would have been and yeah that was what stood out to me that Clark himself had obviously gone through the ringer for a long time after Hughes passed away and you know he was part of that test match as well at the Michael Clark century that he made with a back that was gone, hamstrings that were shot, could barely run, could barely move. Yeah, it goes down as one of the most memorable hundreds made in, in modern history for Australia, no question. So that is the 408 for Philip Hughes from Lachlan Pye. Um, thanks for giving us a, a chance to talk about that. Uh, one more new number for today from Alan Simpson. It's £1.99, and this this really tied in because there there was this clue, this note that came in um, from Alan saying, my long overdue nerd pledge of 199 relates to a player who had his career and young life cut tragically short, but whose name will live forevermore in literature. Um, and so it, it didn't necessarily imply it was about the same player, but there was, you know, there, there, there are these stories, there are... There are, there are the players who didn't get to fulfil their potential or, or who just got through their cricket careers and didn't get to fulfil their lives after that, you know, the likes of Hedley Verity and 
others we've talked about on the show. Yeah, it seems to be a recurring theme on, on story time in, in the last couple of months, doesn't it? That we're, we're coming back to talk about players who, who died prematurely not long after their careers. Um, we saw Aubrey Faulkner, of course, who was admitted to the ICC Hall of Fame a couple of weeks ago, falls into that category. Um, I looked at 199s first and tried to reverse engineer it. And, you know, you put 199 uh, and, and, and search around that, and invariably it's all about Jack Hobbs, isn't it? And he's 199 mm-hmm. first-class tons. But, yeah, he lived until a grand old age of 81, dying in 1963. That uh, JJ Ferris took 199 wickets at 14.7 on the 1888 Tour of England. And as we know, he died... <laughs> Um, JJ nice. Ferris um, at age 33 in 1900. We've discussed that before. He, he got typhoid having served at the Boer War. He had an episode on a tram mm. not long after he'd been dishonorably discharged from the military. So there was always some sketchy details around how he actually mm. died and the, the interaction between the illness and what had happened at war and, and all the rest of it. But yeah, one of the pioneers or the early the early champions of, uh, of Test cricket, having been one of the few that played for mm-hmm. both Australia and England. But again, yep. I mean, you're looking at that and I'm thinking to myself, well, is it going to be about 199 wickets on one tour? Probably not. And also, is there a literary link? That's not so much my bag, but Jeff, you didn't seem to think so. Um, for Ferris, I, I, didn't, I didn't search for Ferris, but, you know, the, the, the most standout Ferris in pop culture is, of course, Ferris Bueller. <laughs> uh, not exactly a, a literary link. <laughs> Cinematic one. I'd, I'd go so far as to say, I think the greatest film of all time. I think in terms of rewatchability, um, definitely rewatchability, complexity yeah. of themes, uh, yep. you know, complexity of character development, cool scenes with the convertible, reworking biblical hymns, it's twist and shout. Uh, there's so much in there. Um, yeah, in, in in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Mia Sara, as well. <laughs> Yep, the the fact that the guy playing seventeen year old Cameron was like thirty five when they shot the film. Yeah, and he went um, on to he's been he's here now. I mean, of course, is in Succession, isn't he? Alan Ruck, hmm. brilliant actor, and was in Spin City with Michael J. Fox. Spin City. So, so glad we got to talk about but, Ferris Bueller's Day Off on, on Story Time. Yeah, here we are. Yeah, yeah it's important. <laughs> um, so there, I I didn't I didn't see a literary link, but then I, and I thought, look, maybe maybe this is. A Philip Hughes double. There wasn't much of a literary link for Philip Hughes. There was a, an a ecclesiastical a Catholic clergyman who wrote a popular history of the Catholic Church, which mm-hmm. was sold, sold a lot of copies in the 60s or so. <laughs> There's a Philip Hughes author who writes technical manuals and one who writes a line of what he calls Mediterranean noir, which is like crime novels set in Naples, but I wouldn't really class any of that as literature per se. But when I was looking at the numbers, there is a compelling numerical link for 199. We talked about Philip Hughes having test cap 408. Mm. He does not have ODI cap 199, but he does have ODI cap 198. Okay. Which is very close to 199. Now, when he debuted, 199 also debuted in that match, as did 197. So Aaron Finch was 197, Hughes was 198, and Usman Khawaja was 199. They all debuted together. So... Does that relate to 199 for Hughes in a way that's not just me saying maybe the number's wrong, which is my usual go-to? <laughs> it does because Finch opened with Hughes, got out early. Kawaja batted at first drop and didn't make many. Both of them got out, after which Philip Hughes went on to make a century on debut in ODI cricket, which nobody had ever done before for Australia, meaning that after 198 failed attempts to make 100 on debut... Philip Hughes on the 199th attempt by an Australian player 
in men's ODI cricket made a century on one day debut. It was achieved in the 199th debut innings in <laughs> men's cricket for Australia. As an aside, he also hit 199 fours in test cricket. But I think that's strong enough to say that in the 199th debut innings for the men's team, Phil Hughes made 100 on debut. He was 199 in that sense. That's very good. Nice way of coming at it. So uh, both in the case of Lachlan Pye and Alan Simpson, we've got a chance to talk about Philip Hughes, which is a nice thing. We like to do that when we can on Storytime. Uh, that's the end of the new numbers. Uh, if you want to support the show via the Patreon page by sending in a nerd pledge, that would just be fabulous. You can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash the final word. If you're new to the show, we've had a lot of people finding the final word in recent times, having listened to our, watched our YouTube videos around the India-New Zealand World Test Championship final. So if you're brand new to Storytime, welcome. Great mm-hmm. to have you with us. And as Jeff explained off the top, it's the quiz which you participate in. And you can send in your number, yeah, patreon.com forward slash the final word. Uh, it makes an enormous difference to enabling Jeff and I to do what we need to do to keep making the show week to week. It's an absolute joy to do so. And yeah, it's been especially uh, important over the last 12 months or so. So patreon.com slash the final word. And on that note, Jeff, I reckon we'll take a brief break. Then we're going to come back and revisit some numbers we got wrong in the past and confirm some others that we did get right. We might have a look at old Charlie Bannerman and then complete our show with some correspondence. Hi, my name's Kate Cross and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. Jeff, we mentioned Lord's Tabs off the top of the show uh, in the context of Declan Lawler's uh, ultra-marathon upon ultra-marathon upon ultra-marathon uh, next week. But there's there's more coming up with the LTs uh, later in the year. They can't have these big events, these big luncheons that they would normally would because mm-hmm. of the COVID restrictions. And, and even though they will lift for the most part uh, in late July, it wouldn't be responsible to have these huge lunches. So instead, uh, they're getting lots of people to where it is safe to have big crowds outside. Outside? At the cricket. At the cricket. At the cricket, doing what we love, right? So Lord's Taverners have a proud tradition of of playing the game as well, and they're going to play a game at gorgeous Wormsley on the 18th of August, and they're encouraging everybody to come along. They're playing the Captain Tom 11, ground control to Captain Tom. And you may remember Captain Tom from uh, beetling up and down his garden repeatedly Declan Lawler style to raise money for the NHS during the pandemic, getting knighted and all that good stuff. And because it's everybody's favourite format, the 100, uh, they're going to play a 100-ball match with the captain, Tom Foundation 11, versus the Lord's Taverners 11. So, yeah, it's at, it's at Wormsley. It's very pretty. I'm looking at pictures of it right now. It looks like exactly where I would like to be during an English summer rather than, say, in Melbourne during the middle of an Australian winter in July. The game will happen in August, Wednesday the 18th of August, uh, and all the stars are coming down. Roll out the red carpet for David Gower, Mike Gatting, Andy Caddick, uh, your mate Matt Floyd will be there, and uh, a host of others all playing in this match to raise funds for the two charities. Yeah, and it's only 25 quid to come along, so that's... I suppose in relative terms, quite cheap to come and watch David Gow bat. I suppose David Gow now in his sixties would be just as uh, just as mm. chilled at the crease as he was in his twenties. I don't think his um, his yeah. uh, energy levels would have uh, changed much over the over the years since his retirement. Doesn't do a lot of batting these days, does he? he, he I think seem he, like the he does to... play with the tabs. 
Gower. So mm. he, he would still have a degree of competence. In, well, what am I saying? He, mm. He'll still be a gun, I'm sure. A lot of former international cricketers listed there, as we said before. So you can book very straightforward. There's also an opportunity to be in the marquee, the boundary room marquee. That's the sort of the full bit. That's the three-course lunch. That's the wine. That's the, you know, and there'll be information for that in the link we're going to post in the show notes. But yeah, 18th of August on a Wednesday, if I recall correctly, that's a week when there's no test match because I know my birthday's just before and I'm going to go and mm-hmm. and have a little holiday that week, a very brief holiday with my mm-hmm. fam. Who knows? Maybe we'll end up at Wormsley as well. It'll be a classic busman's uh, where I say to Rach, <laughs> we're going to go to Wormsley to watch the cricket. Why don't we just stop by? Uh, I've got a, <laughs> an attraction in mind for us to go and have a look at. Uh, we're going to High Wickham. We're going to the cricket. No, uh, we won't be doing that. A man was found dead at the side of a roadway <laughs> near Wormsley. <laughs> no, but yes, it, it's, a, it's a great thing to be able to do. Look, the fact of the matter is, is the very idea of having crowds at the cricket is still a novelty to mm. me. I'm doing the game tonight with Floydy, who's, uh, who's one of the celebrities listed here. I love that. We're commentating at the moment for the blast underneath Father Time because for whatever reason we can't access the media centre to do the stream but it means we're basically calling from in the crowd so right. I mean there aren't people next to Is us Is Russell frankly. Gilbert with you perchance ready to take a catch <laughs> for the KFC um, you know playing playing along for someone at home yeah, who one gets of, 15 one the, grand Yeah one of the, the, the least considered novelties in the history of uh, the, the Big Bash wasn't it where we'll just put Robert Dippy at Amenico on his own on a platform in the southern stand and hope that someone and hope it gets hit to ball him. towards him I don't think they thought that through too well. They should have got Dipper out there doing the bloody boundary interviews. If I had my way, Dipper would be the boundary rider for mm. every game. Right, so, yes, all in the notes. Uh, Captain Tom mm. Foundation 11 against the Lord's Tabs 11 in the Captain Tom 100. The 18th of August, gorgeous Wormsley, a stunning ground. I'm going to be there next month as well playing in another game. I can't wait to be there. Uh, and if you want to be there on that date, just £25. So it's reasonably good value, I would say. And you know that all the money is going to the right place, and that's to the Lord's Tabernacle for their valuable work. Yep, they're helping uh, kids living with disability and living in disadvantaged situations. Uh, So you can do your bit and have a good day in the process. Hi, I'm Brian Roddle. You're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. This is The Final Word Storytime with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. We're at the second bit of the show, the bit where we look back, we look to the past. Wait, the whole show's about looking back to the past. All right, the part where we look at our recent past, <laughs> the numbers we got right, the numbers we got wrong, the numbers we need to look at again, revisits, confirmations, correspondence. Uh, where do we start? We start with, uh, well, uh, the, the, your, oh, I was going to call him your nemesis, but he's not really your nemesis, Rob O'Neill. Mm. Um, he's the man who set you some obscure... The rarities and oddities bucket has been where Rob O'Neill's lived mm-hmm. and you've gone with him. Now, the clue is 200. Well, the number is 200. So initially we were mm-hmm. like, well, this could be this could be a Julio pledge. You might have, he, he might have gone the he yep. might have gone the other way entirely, but no, it's not. Yeah. It's not at all. So the clues came through. The first one uh, was mm-hmm. that it's the number two, but it relates to a first. And then Jeff, yeah, you went that's on, what we went with on week one, yes, with, where where I I said Billy Midwinter was the first player to play for two countries, yes, and thus was it two for Billy Midwinter. And Rob returned serve by saying it's not uh, Billy Midwinter, whose number would have to be two sixteen when playing for Australia and two eleven when playing for England, or would it be two two six and two two one? Anyway, you're in the right century. But the two is not a cricket number. If I was picking a cricket number for this person, it could only be nine. 
Mm, yeah. Okay. So this this absolutely broke my head, and I literally just realised while you were reading out the clue, I realised what he was on about with the the two eleven and the two two six and all that stuff, which were not clues. This was just Rob having an idle musing where he was like, "Midwinter two one six would be the twenty first of June in Australia." And two one one would be the twenty first of January in England, and thus midwinter. That's the solstice. Solstice, yep. And that's what he was on about, but it had nothing to do with the number. So I, I was going to say wasted. I invested a lot of time in trying to work out what the hell Rob was talking about with this. It would have to be two sixteen when playing for Australia and two one one when playing for England. Nothing to do with the answer. Nothing to do with the answer whatsoever. What was to do with the answer was being in the right century. Okay, so we means we're in the nineteenth century. Also numerically confusing. Do you know how, like, I still find it hard to get my head around that thing that the 1800s are the 19th century, (laughs) you know? Like, that when you get to 1800, it means you've already had 18 centuries, and so 1801 is in the 19th century. Just That that doesn't bother me so much as I I was one of these annoying people that thought the the new millennium, or we should have Mm. celebrated the moving from 2000 to 2001 with similar fervour as we did from 1999 to 2000. I know that wasn't a popular view, like much as it is Mm. with decades, when decades end. I mean, when the 2010s begin, it doesn't mean the new decade's begun, does it? Mm. The new decade begins Mm. in 2011. But it it means a new decade has begun, because a decade can be any sequence of 10 years. Yes, that's that's true as well. But you know what I'm trying to say. I do. But I think when you say like a decade that is the 20s, for instance, it has to start in 2020. It can't start in 2021. No, no that, that's right. And I you suppose know. I've just made an entire three-part podcast series about the electrifying 80s with Dylan Leach yep. on his Australian football video. Yeah. Like, I don't think that would have quite worked had the 80s finished with the 1990 grand final. So, No. Yeah, the 80s have to reasons. be 80 to 89. Yeah. Those are the 10 years to end in the 80s. With the 1989 grand final <laughs> right? and the move right? from the VFL to the AFL. That just wouldn't yeah. work otherwise. Exactly. And if Wisdom Cricket Monthly did an episode every month through <laughs> the 80s, they would end up with 120 episodes after 10 years. They would, all be, they would all be the additions from the 80s. That's how it works. Right. So Rob O'Neill, two, relating to the 19th century the 1800s, and this bit where he said, if I were picking a cricket number for this person, it could only be nine. Okay. I I had a bolt of inspiration, and, and here is where I've come to, Rob O'Neill. Two, the number is two, and even two. Murum Gunaraman, one of the players on the 1868 Aboriginal tour to the UK. Given that this tour was run by white people who couldn't pronounce any of the names, they made up English language names for these players. So Unaraman gets referred to as Johnny Muller. Murum Gunaraman gets referred to as Twopenny and he's still listed as Twopenny in the various cricket statistics pages. Rob O'Neill's two is two for Twopenny. He was on the 1868 tour. This was only three years after overarm bowling first got legalised and Twopenny bowled really quick. He bowled gas and he bowled with a sort of round arm, slingy action. And so the captain, the white captain on the tour, was worried that Murum Gunaraman would be no-balled in England, called for throwing. And so he only got to bowl towards the end of the tour, the last few games. But when he was allowed to bowl towards the end of the tour, he took 35 wickets at an average of 6.9. Nice. (laughs) Yeah, very nice. Mostly bowled because no one could deal with his pace. And, and there was a foreshadowing in this this concern about being no-balled because that was a, a 
strong theme that emerged with Aboriginal players, Aboriginal bowlers, um, through the time to come after this. So Jack Marsh, around the turn of the century, got no-balled comprehensively and basically got no-balled out of the game. Eddie Gilbert always had the threat of no balls hanging over him and that's partly why he never made it through to get picked to play for Australia, though he was playing for England. It was very clearly a racist way of saying, you know, we don't want black people playing the game, so we'll just no ball all of them when they come into bowl. So this was the situation that he was in, but the nine, the number nine that Rob mentions, this relates to a batting Incident where, well, firstly that that Muram Gunaraman mostly batted at number nine. That was his. He was a he could hit big, but he didn't hang around for long. That was always his way. So he batted at nine and had a swing. And at one point during one of the matches on this tour, he completed the feat of scoring nine runs from a single delivery, nine all run, with no overthrows. This is okay. This is a feat that, that that gets reported and that was reported contemporaneously. There's there's backup evidence from it. The way it's been mythologized now is that he hit the ball so high in the air that they ran nine before it had time to come down. That's not true. You can't do that. <laughs> That's physically impossible. Um, right, but it's right. like- Reminds me of the other week when um, I may have said this on the show. I may not have. I don't think I did. Mm. When Tom Latham said. It's more important that we beat England than winning the World Test Championship. And I mm-hmm. relayed this information to Jeremy Coney. He goes, well, some some things that – some you could call that deceit. You could call that untruthfulness. You could call it a, a flat-out lie. Well, I'd call it all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a, the story about him hitting it so high that they ran nine before it came down, it's very sort of Max Walker – book form you yes. know the the ball split in half and and the the cork <laughs> landed inside the rope and the leather went over and they scored 10 from the last ball to win the ball landed in the middle of a curled up tiger snake and by the time you know by the time he crawled um, over the rope and it never touched yeah. the ground <laughs> yeah so there is a contemporaneous newspaper report that refers to one of the fielders that and it says mr foster who was well up did not offer for some time to go for the ball and when started it was at a slow pace, the result being that nine was run for the hit amidst vociferous cheering. So basically some like lazy posh fuck in the other team was like, I'm not going to get that ball, and then like <laughs> walked after it, and Murum Kanaraman just went, just keep running, just keep running, get as many as we can. So they did run nine, all run with no overthrows, um, and that's that's a famous part of his career. So that's the two for two, Benny, and the nine for the runs. And as for it being a first, because uh, Rob said that this was a first, in February 1870, after getting home, Marunganaraman became the first Indigenous player to play first-class cricket oh, cool. in Australia. He was picked. He played one match for New South Wales. And Unaraman, Johnny Muller, uh, got a game for Victoria almost a decade later, Adam, almost a decade, uh, even though it didn't necessarily go from... The start of a formal decade to the end. It was it was close to ten years later when he played a game for Victoria. So that's the first. That's Rob O'Neill's clue, uh, and that's where we end up. Thank you, Jeff. As we went through that, every time you said Rob O'Neill, I thought we should call him from now on Robo Neil. Robo Robo Neil. Yeah, two first names, much like Jean Valjean. Yes, yes, nicely done, Jeff. Our next number mm-hmm. that we have to revisit. Is three fifty seven from James Tiernan. We eventually threw this back to the crowd. The clue was to do with something I had said 
late last year on the show about how my life could be different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we thought that might mean Durham. That was quite a good pickup from you, Jeff, saying, oh, that might be when I said on the show, well, if life were different, mm-hmm. I could live in, in the northeast of England, which I stand by. But mm-hmm. James came back to us with a bit more information. Yep. Uh, stroking a white cat while he wrote this message, James said, delighted to have stumped you on this one. <laughs> you were heading in the right direction with Sunderland, which is part of the wider ceremonial boundaries of Durham, which stretched northwards to the banks of the Tyne and was administratively part of the county until the mid-1970s. And boy, they still wish see- they were. Whenever, whenever you hear anyone from, from uh, Sunderland talking about cricket, they are very proud to still be ceremonially at least part of County Durham. They do not want to be mm. part of I don't know what the administrative it's called it's called is it Tyne and Weir or something like that. Mm. And they hate that. They they wish they were still part of County Durham formally. Well, you know what they say, the Tynes are a changing. James said this was prompted by Adam saying on the New Year's Eve show that if life had been different, he could be living in Sunderland, where not looking for a Durham player, but someone with a famous other sporting connection to Sunderland, as well as a notable cricket career. I'm going to guess Sunderland till I die. Yeah, it was a Sunderland till I die type from well several decades before. Willie Watson was uh, test cap number 357. 23 test matches for England, but 211 caps for Sunderland and four for England. So a legitimate sort of dual international and like a proper one too, a, a, a champion across both sports. Uh, and he kind of went from one to the other, from one to the other, which I also quite liked in terms of his overall story. To start with cricket in 1939, Willie Watson made his debut for Yorkshire. Dreadful timing, of course, because he loses six years of his career just as he's getting started but yeah he makes his debut as a left-handed batsman after world war ii he starts to flourish and gets his test debut in 1951 six years on from that he only played 23 test matches in eight years which reflects the sort of glory era of english cricket doesn't it the early to mid 50s when england really were unbeatable and the best team in the world so he had a lot of competition in the middle order and that's summed up by the uh, the lord's test match of 1953 which is his finest moment they're in a world of hurt england at lords against australia at 12 for three chasing 343 staring down the barrel of going one nil down in that series but watson walks out at number five bats for eight hours uh, and along with trevor bailey they save the match with uh, our man making 109 his first test century so despite the fact that they drew the test principally due to him he gets dropped because it's such a strong batting lineup that he, he loses his spot for the next test match and in the end england of course win that series uh one uh, nil. The um, the Brian Johnson, is it the Ashes? Yes, it's the Ashes. When they win the the final test at the Oval on the final day, uh, so uh, yeah, it, it kind of summed up his his life in the game, in the team, out of the team, and, and so it went. Later on, as a professional, he went to Leicestershire, captain the county, got back in the England team by 1958, finished up uh, in 1964, 55 first class tons, 25,000 runs at an average of 40, a career that spanned a quarter of a century, 1939 to 1964. Meanwhile, on the football pitch, he was at Sunderland between 1946 and 1954, a midfielder. He won those four England caps before he made his test debut. So in 1949 and 1950, he was part of the World Cup squad in 1950. He didn't play in that, in that tournament, but he was mm. part of the, the England squad that... That was Brazil, wasn't it, 1950? So he was over there with them. Yes. And, and that back and forth continues. So when he finishes cricket... 
1964. He goes on to manage Halifax Town and Bradford at football. Mm. Uh, and then in 1968, he moves to South Africa to coach the Wanderers Cricket Club. And that's where he ends up staying for the rest of his life, passing away at age 84 in 2004. But yes, cap 357, a Sunderland champion, an accomplished English cricketer and test player. Willie Watson, thanks to James Tiernan for giving me a chance to look at that one. That was nice. Willie Watson, just one W short of a web address. Uh, thank <laughs> you, James. Our next revisit is Brian Stratford, the $2.73, uh, which I said that's what Virat Kohli made during the 2016 World Cup of the T20 variety. You did, you did. And Brian said that it was great that uh, we were able to consider his nerd pledge on story time and it coincided with his birthday. On his birthday, Brian, on your birthday. <laughs> it happened yesterday though. Um, we've, we've, we've recorded this episode in two parts. I said off the mm-hmm. top that we were, I was in Taunton uh, for part one. I'm in, I'm in London now. Last night, between times, I was doing the, the Middlesex Blast game at Lords and Sam Robson, Middlesex's county opening batsman, sitting to our right. And it got brought to my attention that it, that it was his birthday, and I it invariably went on his birthday, and I'm like, that will make no sense to anybody. <laughs> this is English county cricket; they won't care about Mark Taylor and Peters at all. This is not a thing for them. Anyway, <laughs> we've got to make it a thing. We've got to yes, make it a thing. Yes. So Brian enjoyed hearing about Coley in 2016, uh, but unfortunately, his number relates to neither Virat nor India. My mention of seeing it published earlier in the year, which was his initial clue, sent you down the wrong path. I'll provide two additional clues. My number is an international career total for this player, as revealed in the article he read earlier this year. And number two, to borrow a clue from a past pledger, whilst I've chosen to pay in sterling for convenience, there are two other currencies mm-hmm. that may have been more applicable here. I hope that helps, but feel free to get t- in touch again if you can't get it. Right, so other currencies that we have on the page, Jeff, AUD, Euros, I think Canadian dollars yeah. are on there, New Zealand dollars. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are lots of options there on the Patreon page, as you'll find out. No longer are you restricted to USD. But anyway, that's a that's a conversation we'll have in a bit. I'm going to say off the top that I, I have not decisively solved this because the, the two currencies thing is still confounding me. Does this mean it's someone who played for two countries or played a lot in two countries? But I did just find a, a few interesting little bits while I was looking through my stats archives. Uh, around the number 273, one of which is that Daniel Christian scored 273 one-day international runs for Australia. And he's and not done yet. Noting. And he's not that's done yet. That's what I was yet. about to say. Yeah. He might he might just add to that tally. For a long time, <laughs> that number's been set in stone. He hasn't played an ODI since, what, 2013 or something? He played a few T20s since then, but not a, not a 50-over game. They, they put out um, a video from yeah. They put out a video from the Caribbean overnight, the Australian mm. digital team. Uh, I think uh, I, I did, I, I've seen that they've got a few of the digital staff out there on the flight. Yeah. And it was, it was like a minute of them in the gym. So Adam Jab is playing up to the cameras, lifting the dumbbells. And all the guys are doing their thing, you know, heavy weights and stuff you do when, mm-hmm. you're, when you're a professional athlete. And I, they cut to Dan Christian, who's just having a jog on the treadmill. I'm like, exactly right. If you're 38 <laughs> years of age or whatever he is now, and you're yeah. back on the international circuit, you just jump on that treadmill. You don't need to lift any more weights, mate. You've done all no. the weights you need to do for the rest of your life, or at least the rest of your professional mm-hmm. career. <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly that. Now, an- another link to the part of the world that they're in because they'll be going to Barbados to play those ODIs where Dan Christian could add to his 70, 273 ODI runs. Gloria Gill in the 70s, I think Gloria Gill was playing, who was a, a Barbadian player, played for Barbados women and also played for the West Indies. She made 273 runs in her test career. In one day cricket, <laughs> Jacques Callis took 273 wickets to go with his 294, I think, in test cricket. A couple it's a of really, it really is totals. a lot of wickets for a guy that made like yeah. nearly 40,000 international runs. That's, that's exaggeration. Yeah. But for a guy that made well over 20,000, maybe mm. 30,000 international runs when you fold in T20s, that's a lot of wickets. Yeah, that, that really yeah. is. It's, a, a, it's, it's an accept. It's 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 an extreme amount of wickets for a guy that did this very much as his second discipline. Yeah, and and you feel like if he got a handful more and was three hundred in each discipline, like maybe the bowling would be recognised more than it is. But you know, three hundred Test wickets is the greats. You know, that's where yeah. that's where the really really top players are. And yeah, two ninety four is if you know numbers, it's close to three hundred. So Kellis with two seventy three. I liked this little link that Alan Border played two hundred and seventy three ODIs. And his record for the, having the most runs in Test cricket stood for twelve years, two hundred and seventy-three days. <laughs> so a two-seven-three double for AB. Very good. Um, and the last bit was that. So I realised all of these were in one discipline, whereas Brian said this was an international career total, which could mean combined disciplines. So in combined disciplines, okay. Chris Harris turned out for New Zealand 273 times and I just enjoy remembering Chris Harris every time I remember him this like balding sort of innocuous looking dude who who sort of ran in like he was delivering a parcel to the house and then bowled these weird doorknob nude balls sort of medium paced like he was unscrewing a light bulb that just floated down the other end and yet no one could hit him he was really hard. Every time someone tried to hit him, they were caught at deep mid-wicket, it seemed. Yeah, and I feel like even that, you're giving it too much credence, really. He was, by the Channel 9 vernacular, he was right arm slow. And I reckon I still, I mean, by that I mean, he just, most of the time, he just rolled in and bowled it at what would have been, I mean, I doubt the speed gun was on it when he was playing, but I don't know, like 105 kilometres an hour, something like yeah. that. I mean, only a fraction quicker than, than the spinners get it through at. And it was so effective because it was a point of difference. And I don't think there would be a, a week that would go by where someone doesn't get compared to Chris Harris when playing mm-hmm. club cricket or recreational cricket. Indeed, the game I was referring to on the weekly show that I played, one of the most important overs for us, we took all the pace off the ball. And I said, just like Chris Harris, got to take pace off the ball. It's a slow <laughs> pitch. It's a long outfield, just like Chris Harris. And it worked. So, you know, he left a big yeah. legacy. Our last revisit is from Basab Majumdar, £9.06. Now, we said this was the number of wickets taken by India's 1970s spin quartet, plus the 52 wickets taken by Chandu Borde, plus the one wicket taken by Sunil Gavaskar, <laughs> who led them through most of their career. And if you add all those together, it adds up to 9.06. A pretty bloody good answer. Almost right. But not entirely right. Yeah, Basab uh, got in touch to say that he'd heard his number over those couple of weeks that we were looking at it about a month ago. I suppose it would have been maybe six weeks ago. Another spectacular performance from Jeff and great discussion on the great spinners. Great find, but that last link wasn't correct. But it's still an awesome connect. I was actually thinking of Eknath Solkar, a remarkable forward short leg fielder who took 53 catches in a mere 27 test matches. Incredible record against spinners and handy with the bat and as a bowler. Watch him catching not in 1971 at the Oval. Hats off to both of you, though. That's nice, Basab. Thank you. He's been a very 
enjoyable, fun person to correspond with about the game mm. and about matters around the game. So uh, I'm glad that we were very close and nearly had that last wicket. But yeah, Eknath Solkar was the missing link, not Sunil Gavaskar. Very nice. Let's watch him catching Alan Knott, the England wicketkeeper, yes. if you're confused by that. It's easier when it's written down. Yeah, I, I would not have put that together with, with the number of catches um, that he took to add those into the wickets telly, but we get to 9.06 in two different ways, which makes me very happy. The confirmations, some that we got right, starting off with the $2.22 from Srikanth Agram, where we said the partnership between Sachin and Azaruddin in South Africa in the late 90s uh, when they made 222 out of not many more than that for India. Yep, and Shrikanth uh, confirms that you absolutely nailed it. Uh, I was put in mind of this partnership when I went to your patron page and the example pledge was 222. I like that. Also, your quest of the Bannerman and Bannerman-adjacent things brought this partnership to mind. As you pointed out, the partnership was almost exactly half of the Indian score in both innings combined. And I felt that, that it was a good first effort at finding a partnership equivalent of the Bannerman. So a nice thoughtful final word link uh, back through there from Shrikanth and Jeff, you were on the money on 222, as you were, by the way, with 335 from Samuel Chappell, where the clue was about a player from the West Country and you very quickly realised that Sam must be talking about Jack Crap and uh, Sam wrote to me and said, spot on gents, a lovely dusty old bastard, jack shit indeed. <laughs> yes, uh, Cornwall's finest. Sam was grudgingly willing to say that Jack Crap was was from Cornwall because he was born there and died there, um, even though he played for Gloucestershire, which is, you know, I was like, it's pretty much Cornwall, isn't it? I don't want to make anyone mad, but it's pretty close. <laughs> um, Alistair Wilson for 19. So this was a doubleheader with another 419. We talked about Littleton and we talked about Gundaba Vishwanath as well, his batting average, um, along with another patron, Dan Walsh. So Alistair says, G'day chaps, there I was thinking that my 419 pledge with no clue would allow me a good answer but not the right answer and the opportunity to come up with a cryptic clue for a second go and you go and get Alfred Littleton straight away, even if you did attribute it to Dan Walsh. Denied. <laughs> I was hoping to give you the clue that the pledge related to someone who racked up a hat-trick in a university match, which Littleton did for Cambridge. There we go, another football crossover. He was also on the losing side of the 1876 FA Cup final playing for Old Etonians. Well, well, well. That Cup final and its replay were both played at the Oval, as was the England versus Scotland game, which was Elf's only soccer international appearance in which he scored England's only goal in a 3-1 loss. Of the other 12 English cricket football dual internationals, C.B. Fry played in a losing FA Cup final too. In 1902, Claire Taylor lost three in a row, 94, 95, 96. I'm getting very Geelong um, football club <laughs> grand final vibes there. However, three dual internationals have an FA Cup winner's medal. Harry Makepeace in 06, Jack Sharp in 07, and Andy Ducat in 1920. That is good cross-code nerding, Alistair. Glad we got there. Yeah, that's fantastic stuff. I feel like we've learnt quite a lot about cricketers that play football and vice versa today. So that's 4.19 going forward in 10s to 4.29. Daniel O'Connell, we said Marcus North's six for out of 14 wickets in Test cricket. So the original clue was that 4.29 related to a percentage of the overall Test wickets taken by a player in one honourable innings. Daniel writes to us, amazing work with my number by Jeff. Clearly, I didn't think through my clue, but you deciphered it perfectly. Uh, I wish I had have looked at those players that took six out of their 14 career wickets in an inning so that my number could have related to Nutty Martin. <laughs> 
Oh, Who doesn't want a number related to nutty mutt? <laughs> Glad my number allowed that story to be told, though. You did mention my nerd pledge. I can confirm it was relating to Marcus North's six foot at Lords, hence it being honourable. I love the fact that his name is on the honours board amongst some of the greatest bowlers we've seen. Very good. Thank you, Dan O'Connell, a man named after my favourite former pub. Now, we mentioned Bannerman's earlier. Uh, that is scoring 67.35% or more of a team innings in a completed performance and we have one from our listener Osman Bohemia well, not only from Osman Bohemia but by Osman Bohemia in our own mm. ranks in our own patron ranks so Osman says that he's been meaning to send us this bannerman for a while and he isn't sure whether we'll consider it legit because it comes in last man stands cricket which if I recall correctly is an eight aside version of mm-hmm. the game where you need to be eight out, all out, uh, the last man, so to speak, stands and can only score in twos, fours and sixes. Mm-hmm. So Osman was playing for Moe's Tavern in Division 3 Brisbane North. We've got a couple of players. Very competitive division, in Div, Bris- 3, Div 3 Brisbane North. That's, you know, yeah, that's- we've, got, we've got a few cricketers that, that play in Brisbane on the patron list. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so having explained that it, it needs to be eight out, all out, Osman came in at number four uh, with not many runs on the board chasing 241. And then he's let loose, hitting 123 from 53 balls, mostly through sixes and fours. Goes on to say, granted, it wasn't the biggest ground in the world, but it wasn't a kid-sized ground either. I was eventually dismissed, run out. Yep, I attempted to run a two. And the team total... I love that you could get run out batting on your own. So good. <laughs> There's no one to blame for the mix-up. No, yet. no, that's it. The team total was eight for 145. So 85% of the team total. That's not only a bannerman. That's not only a bannerman. That is... I mean, that, that is... That that's is a turner. That is putting him into Glenn Turner ranks there. I can't remember. Does Turner... I was just mm. thinking as I was saying it. Is Turner above 85? He might be 83. Yeah, he's, he, he's 85 point something. 85 point something. I had heaps of fun. I was dropped three or four times and made the decision to try and hit every ball for six. It worked. I no longer play last man stands. I now stick to the traditional form in the summer. I much prefer to grind an innings out. Uh, and he sent us a scorecard as well. It's an absolute beauty. So 123 of 53 balls out of 145 for eight all out, of course, 85% of the total. That's a proper bannerman. A bannerman of our own. Thank you, Osman Bohemia. We're proud of you. Gorgeous stuff, Osman. Love it. Uh, a bit of correspondence on other themes. Ellen Simpson, we were doing some number wang on Mataya Muralitharan. Uh, a little more on Murali, he says, because I was talking about how many five-wicket hauls Murali had taken and how ridiculously far ahead of everyone else he is. And Alan has sent us on some information from the pinch hitter, which is an email, that says that, yes, he leads with fivers by having 37 five-wicket hauls. He also has the most sixers in the history of Test cricket with 19 of them. He also has the most sevenfers, um, equal with Harbhajan Singh, did that six times. He also has the most eightfers, <laughs> tied with George Lohman, uh, did that three times. And also the most ninefers, uh, in that he did that twice and stands alone. Uh, the only record he doesn't have is 10 in an innings, uh, which uh, has only ever been done once uh, but by, well, it's been done by a couple of players, but only once each. And Murali didn't quite get there with 10 for, but... 
he's got everything else. Yep, that's Wanganam. Next in terms of our correspondence was from Glenfin Keld on the Ian Callan mancad. So this was just establishing that we'd had some correspondence when we talked about Ian Callan from a number of people saying, oh, isn't he the guy that ran out at on striker in a district final in the 80s or something like that? And sure enough, Glenn, who is all over uh, this kind of material. If you want to know about the history of, of Melbourne grade club park recreational cricket Glenn is the guy to go to as far as our patrons are concerned so pair a 30 year retrospective that the, the Herald Sun did this was a, a low scoring final in 86-87 where Northcote just got over the line against Collingwood and Ian Mad Dog Callan was the man that generated a lot of attention of course being a former test cricketer but he ran out the non-striker a Victorian player David Emerson was backing up too far at the bowler's end and, and Callan did as he was entitled to do on the third and final day of that decider and ran him out. <laughs> and he also went on to take four for 74 from 38.2 overs. But uh, it was the incident with Emerson that, that people tend to recall, according to this retrospective. So, And as Callan says, he's quoted in this piece saying that um, that he, he'd watched him back up a, a number of times and, uh, you know, um, he, he was adamant that he'd, he'd warned him for doing this. Not that you need to warn a non-striker for backing up, but he had done so. So he, he didn't hesitate in, in taking the bails and, and fair enough too. So Ian Callan, uh, you're one of us. Yes, one of us, one of us. I, I liked uh, Kellen's mention that he said he, he didn't he didn't try to do anything deceptive. He just stopped, and the, the batsman was about two yards out of his ground and just turned around and had to try to scramble back. Too late, too late. Thank you, Glenn Finkeld, and a last letter from Mandy McArdle, uh, who. I love this little bit that we've been sent in. As an English woman of a certain age, says Mandy um, very discreetly, I remember the 1970s very well. In 1971, a British pop group called Blue Mink had a number three hit with a song called Banner Man. (laughs) Excellent. It might not be the greatest song ever written, but it has a catchy tune, and every time you mention Bannerman on your podcasts, I immediately start singing it. Uh, She says... Sing us a song, you're the Banner Man. Yeah, sing us a song tonight because we're all in the mood for a century and our teammates are batting like shite. Mandy says she discovered the show during lockdown over winter in the UK. She says, when I downloaded the podcast, they went back over three years to Sandpaper Gate. So as well as listening to the latest podcasts, I'm gradually listening to the old ones. Uh If you have time to do that, Mandy, that is incredible because at the rate that we're putting them out at the moment. She says, it's interesting listening to your predictions of teams and games, knowing now how they all (laughs) unfolded. You you know how Marty McFly feels with the sports almanac, Mandy. And she finishes by saying, I'm lucky to live in the village of Cheddar, famous for cheese, caves and cliffs in the Mendip Hills. It is whilst walking in these hills that I listen to your podcasts. If you can, please give Somerset a look. I could point you in the right direction. Well, all right, Mandy, we'll drop in on you uh, next time Adam and I are both down in Somerset. Yeah, it's a nice place to leave it, given we started recording this when I was in Somerset, now back in London, but it does mean we've reached the end of the show. Some great new numbers today, knocked through a bunch of revisits, confirmations, correspondence, all the Lord's Tavernous stuff. It's been nice to get back in the story time rhythm, Jeff, after a couple of weeks off. It has. Uh, we've, we've done it all. We've done it all. So thanks to everybody who sent in numbers and has signed up for the show. That's the most important and useful bit. Uh, it is is the reason that we can make this show and that we can make the other show and do the dailies and do the videos and uh, do the, the major shows twice a week and all the rest of it is the support of people on Patreon. So if you would like to send us through a number, that would be hugely appreciated. Patreon.com slash the final word. Uh, thanks also for the support 
support from Brick Lane Brewing Community, uh, making delicious beverages that we've been enjoying while we make the show. The final word is on the Bad Producer Podcast Network. They've got other shows as well. If you want to check out things on other subjects, uh, books and other sports and comedy and all of the rest, it's edited by Dave Collins. Uh, thanks to the Lord's Taverners for their support as well and uh, Declan Lawler for the run that he's doing to raise money for the Tavs. Lots of things in the show notes, uh, lots of discounts you can get for cricket gear as well from Woodstock. There are so many... Irons in the fire at the final word, and it's all helping the world go around. We'll be back uh, next Wednesday with the weekly show and the following weekend with Storytime once again, which will be back in its regular spot. Jeff Lennon, Adam Collins, we'll see you. Have a nice weekend. I had to go about it.